Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, and welcome to The Bunker with me, Ahir Shah. So Winston Churchill was one of the most significant figures of the 20th century, a man whose leadership during this nation's darkest and finest hours is celebrated and admired to this day. He was voted the greatest Briton ever in a national poll in 2002, and after his death, even his great opponent, Clement Attlee, paid tribute to him as the greatest Englishman of our time. In India, Churchill's legacy is more complex. Many regard him as the great villain of imperial rule, particularly with regard to his actions and inactions surrounding the Bengal famine of 1943, for which he is often held as ultimately responsible. Perhaps particularly as the British Indian community in the 21st century gains greater significance and prominence, it's worth examining the question, what was Churchill's relationship with India and Indians? Joining me to discuss this is historian Walter Reed, fellow of the Royal Historical Society and author of the new book, Fighting Retreat, Churchill and India. Thank you very much for having me aboard. It's very good to be with you out here. Uh, Walter, Churchill's relationship with India was a lot longer than uh, many people are aware of and really began in the 19th century. Could you start us off perhaps with a positive history of how and why as a young man he ended up there? He went there as a young officer in the cavalry towards the end of the 19th century. He didn't want to go there. He wanted to do military things and get medals and be seen. His aim was not a career in the army, but a career in politics. He was always clear about that. But he thought that the route to a political career would start with a few years in the army, dashing around, doing notable things, getting decorated. And India seemed to him the wrong place for that. It was a it was a sideline at a time when there were lots of battles going on, particularly in Egypt. So he spent most of his time before he went to India trying to get posted to Egypt. And he spent most of his time when he was in the army in India trying to get out of India and getting off to get his medals. He did fight on the northwest frontier. He fought very bravely, as he quite frankly told his mother, he fought very bravely when anyone was looking because he was there to get medals and be noticed, and he was much more circumspect when there was no one to see him. But having said that, he was a good officer. He looked after his men quite well. He said, there's no need to learn Hindi. You can get by perfectly well speaking English and grinning. I grinned a lot, he said. 
in the first half of his life, and we must remember that this is a man who lived to 90, so the lifespan was very large, you paint a picture of a political figure who was, in some ways, certainly, I found, like, startlingly more, for want of a better term, and perhaps anachronistically, sort of progressive, quote-unquote, than we might expect, again, trying to sort of appreciate his context. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that people would find that actually quite surprising. Actually, I hear this is really what brought me to do the book about him because, in general, he was very liberal, small l, or progressive, as you say. He was sensitive and humane to what they called the subject peoples of the empire in those days. He started his political career as a junior minister in the colonial office, and he was really quite concerned about the lot of principally Africans, because remember, the colonial office didn't have responsibility for India. So he was doing progressive things, which the Tories, he was briefly a Tory, didn't like at all. And once he got further up the political tree, he became colonial secretary himself after the First World War, and he found himself with responsibility for the new what were called mandates, the bits of the old Ottoman Empire, which were awarded to Britain at the end of the war on a kind of temporary trusteeship basis. That's places like Iraq and Jordan and Palestine. Far from grabbing these things and hanging on to them and seeing them as a great new extension to the empire, he wanted rid of them as fast as he could. He wanted to devolve power as quickly as he could to semi-democratic institutions. Similarly, in Ireland, he was one of those who propelled Ireland towards independence. So he was seen as as a liberal to the extent that when Stanley Baldwin, who was his political boss in the 1930s, when he was thinking about a new Secretary of State for India, and even when he's thinking of a Viceroy for India, he thought that Churchill, in view of his liberal credentials, might be just the man for one or other of these critical jobs. It's uh, one of these fascinating kind of blind alleys in history what would have happened if he if he had been Viceroy or Secretary of State for India? It's difficult to imagine. But the point you're drawing out and the point that I was struck by was that, yeah, until he was dealing with India, he was essentially liberal, sensitive to the role of subject nations, propelling them towards independence quite fast. He wasn't a blinkered reactionary diehard until he came to consider the case of India. There is a paradox here. Well, yes, I mean, you you write that before beginning your research, you say that you were aware of his determination not to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire, but not prepared for what you found, consistent, disingenuous, and unprincipled opposition to any initiative which might edge India, however slightly, out of the clutches of Great Britain. And similarly, that he was capable of a grandeur of spirit and of a concern for the generality of mankind, but not for India. And you do start to think, like, sort of, what gives? (laughs) Well, what gives is that India made Britain very special. Churchill wanted Britain to be very special. And when Victoria became the Empress of India, after the the role of the East India Company was ended in 1857, it was only then that Britain became an empire. It looked like an empire before, and people sometimes called it an empire, but now it was officially an empire. And what made it an empire, the greatest empire perhaps that the world's ever seen, 
was that we had India, and India was special. India still is special for Brits. That meant a lot for Churchill, and he kept coming back to this. He said, without India, I hope you haven't got a lot of Belgian listeners, without India, Britain <laughs> would be no more than Belgium. And in a way, he was right. We India got independence belatedly in 1847. Britain, in no time at all, was a very minor nation. It's taken a lot of Brits a long time to realize that, but we were we were pretty well bankrupt after the Second World War. We were a very small and inconsequential country, and in 1956, our last sort of imperial fling was an attempt to, uh, the, the, was the Suez adventure when we tried to hang on to the Suez Canal and couldn't do it. So he, he was right in a way. He, he saw this was going to happen, and for him, it mattered. He'd, he'd been born and brought up under Victoria. He'd, you know, as I said, he was out there galloping around on the, west, on the northwest frontier. He was used to a world role for Britain. Britain was the most powerful country in the world when he was a young man. So really, at, at its core, it seems to be the fact that India makes empire empire. That is the thing that sort of needed to be protected at all costs in his mind. Is that what you're trying to... That's what I'm saying. And partly just because of the exoticism, as we saw it, of India and the glamour of India, the riches, the perceived riches of India, but also geographically, dominions, as they were called, overseas like Canada and Australia, India, and to an extent the Middle East, were a kind of link, that a physical link, that had Britain girding the world. And uh, there were others in the 1920s who had not as extreme a view as Churchill, but they saw the British Empire or the British Commonwealth as a force for good. And they thought it was important that it was physically linked. So we've discussed how you perceive some of his thought. I wonder if we can now move on to sort of action, really, because sort of between quite explicitly vocalized sort of divide and rule tactics and attempts to thwart and scupper various moves towards uh, self-government. Firstly, could you describe Churchill's actions as they were towards India in the 1930s and 40s? And secondly, I guess, following on from what we were just talking about, to what extent do you see them simply as the almost internally coherent, at least from the perspective of someone who wanted to maintain the empire, didn't want the jewel in the crown slipping away? Yeah, his first real engagement with India is in the 1930s. After the First World War, India feels it's earned independence. They didn't get it. They got reactionary policies from the British government, what were called the Roat Acts, severely repressive legislation and severely repressive behavior by the authorities. The Jalalabad massacre is perhaps the most uh, famous of these. And uh, this is interesting. He had responsibility there because he was the minister for war. Jalalabad is a, an open piece of ground outside Amritsar. There was quite certainly the most terrible massacre by a British general, Dyer, who told his troops to open fire on a fairly harmless crowd, and he continued firing lo- long after any resistance was being offered. Then the people were made to crawl through the lanes where some of the killing had taken place. Some of them may have had to lick the blood off the paving stones. It was an awful, awful episode. And 
Let's just say some Britons thought it was dreadful, some didn't. Dyer was suspended. It was put on half pay and brought home. And the army council for which Churchill was responsible disciplined him. There was support for him. There was support for him in the House of Lords who voted in favor of him and against the government who had disciplined him. In the Commons, Churchill made one of the most important speeches of his life. He defended the government, that's to say, he supported the idea that Dyer had behaved appallingly. And he started, as Churchill's speeches tended to do, very quietly. Someone said he bored the house into submission. He started just by reciting the facts. It was a forensic turnaround. He had a house probably largely against him. But just as he listened to the recital of facts, which culminated in his peroration when he described the the frightfulness, as he called it, of what Dyer had done. And he carried the house with him. It was one of the most powerful speeches of, of his time and would probably be remembered even if he hadn't made the great speeches of the Second World War. So, so there, Churchill, that's his first responsibility for India. Then in the 1930s, this mood for independence, which had been developing after the First World War, had to be addressed. And British governments recognized that. There were a series of roundtable conferences, some of which Gandhi attended, some of which he didn't. Who Churchill had an almost like pathological hatred for. He was very suspicious of Gandhi. He didn't think he was genuine. Anyway, the, the roundtable conferences didn't come up with anything useful. So the government had to produce its own legislation, which it did in the Government of India bill, which eventually passed into an act form in 1935. It was designed to create federation and move India towards independence. Churchill opposed it with about 50 reactionary diehards. They spun it out at great length. They gave the government a terrible time. They couldn't defeat the government, but they managed to thwart the intention of the act by inserting so many safeguards for minorities. Now, this is, as you say uh, here, is an extension of divide and rule. Hindus, the Congress party, was the dominant party in India. So Churchill affected to be very concerned about the role of the princes and the Muslims. And the act, as it passed, was full of safeguards to protect minority interests. The other element he tried to protect were the Dalits, the untouchable, as they were called in this country at that time. And you can say, oh, here he is again, divide and rule, another body who, whose interests had to be safeguarded. In fact, from all I've read, I think he genuinely was concerned about the Dalits and the way they were treated in India. He, he was, when all is said and done, he was a humane man, as you, you've quoted me on that. And I think he had a genuine horror about the way in which Dalits were treated. He believed that there was something special about humanity, and he was never happy if a part of the of humankind was singled out for ill treatment. I rather think he meant what he said about the Dalits, but as far as the others were concerned, he said, now we have created what he called a tripos, a three-legged stool, on which we may sit indefinitely. And he was taking great pride in the fact that his efforts during the Government of India legislation had separated the three 
the, the three elements in India, and he, he took great pleasure in that, and he made great play of that for the remainder of his time in office, because later in 1940, of course, he becomes prime minister, and he presides over the British government till 1945. And I suppose, like, I guess it's important to say that there's no necessary, for instance, contradiction between having a real and genuine concern for certain minority groups and stuff, but that's perfectly sort of compatible with having a paternalistic approach or wanting to sort of maintain empire indefinitely and everything. There's nothing necessarily contradictory there. No, there's nothing contradictory in, in looking after minority interests. In fact, there's a thoroughly worthwhile thing to do. The question is whether he played that up to thwart the desire for independence because he made in 1940 he made an offer the government British government made an offer to India called the August offer it was an offer to essentially that India would get independence or dominion status at any rate after the war subject to the protection of the rights of minorities now if you stressed enough subject to the rights of minorities that meant you could block it forever. And that really was what Churchill did. I mean, he did want to block it forever. In India, he wanted to thwart what was clearly the democratic wish of the country as a whole. He didn't hate Indians, as he, he sometimes said. He said, I, I hate Indians that are a beastly race with a beastly religion. Yeah, But I think he was doing that to wind up his rather prissy Secretary of State for India, Leo Amory. And he tended to say a lot of things for effect just to stir up trouble. And because that was the way his mind worked, he, he worked by argument. I don't think he hated India. I don't think he wanted to hang on to India because he hated India. I think he wanted to hang on to India because it was what made Britain the kind of country he was brought up in, the kind of country he thought it had to remain. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'd like to turn to something that I think a lot of people will have been thinking about and perhaps know about with relation to this topic, which is the Bengal famine, where up to three million people starved to death. And this was during the Second World War, and there are many people for whom the idea that responsibility in a meaningful sense ultimately rests with Churchill is pretty much a truism. And as you can imagine, I know many people for whom that indeed is the, is the case. Whereas, personally, you write, in my view, when the evidence is weighed, Bengal is not the most serious of the charges that Churchill faces over India. Before we get on to what you believe is the most serious of the charges he faces, could you perhaps outline what happened in Bengal and what your view of Churchill during it is? The Bengal famine resulted from a crop failure. It was exacerbated by the fact there was a lot of hoarding by Bengali merchants who were seeking to take advantage of the rise in prices. The Bengali government, who were not part of the British government, didn't particularly cover themselves in glory in dealing with this famine. 
there's two elements here. First of all, Churchill wasn't directly responsible. He was ultimately responsible, but not directly responsible. But the people who actually made the day-to-day decisions were particularly Lord Leathers, who was the Minister for Supply, uh, who had the unenviable job of deciding where resources, including food, should go during the war. And he took the view that India was not crucial to to victory in the sense that some other theatres of war at that time, particularly Greece, were. Leathers was supported, by the way, in the cabinet by people like Beaverbrook and others. They felt that ultimately the interests of Indians, like the interests of anyone else who was on that side of the war, would be served by an Allied victory, and that the Allied victory required that resources were diverted elsewhere. Churchill, as often, didn't do himself a lot of good by what he said. He proceeded by argument, by adopting extreme positions, letting the other side adopt the extreme position, and listening to the debate, and then reaching a conclusion based on it. In the course of that, he could say awful things, and he said, would it not be better for already starving Bengalis to die rather than sturdy Greeks who are fighting for their independence. Now, that is appalling to modern ears. I think you've always got to judge Churchill not so much by what he said as by what he ultimately did. And what he did do in the context of the famine was to get quite a lot of food from Australia and Canada. And he asked Roosevelt, the great champion of India, the great enemy of imperialism, he asked Roosevelt, with his great resources of wheat from, from the plains, to divert some to India. And Roosevelt said, no, I'm sorry, I've got the greatest sympathy for Bengalis, but we need, the, we need it for the war effort. So he was saying the same thing. He didn't say it in such unfortunate terms, and he hasn't been blamed for it. As you say, I take a slightly more sympathetic view of Churchill in this connection than I do in most of the Indian debate. So... In this vein, what, to your mind, is the most serious of the charges that Churchill faces over India? He was in touch with the princes, particularly. The princes, there's more research needed here. The princes in 1930-ish had been in favor of federation. But in the course of the legislation, it went through very slowly, and there was a lot of publicity given to all the points that Churchill and his group of diehards, as they were called, the points they were making. And the princes ultimately decided at a conference not to support the act any longer. And, and Churchill knew before the government did that the princes had moved against the act and against federation. He was delighted because, you know, without the consent of one of the three elements, independence was never going to come. And he was perfectly confident of that, really. And when the war comes, he's so confident that that he just his decision, along with that of the viceroy, Lynn Lithgow, was, well, we don't even need to talk about independence until the war's over, because obviously we've got much bigger things on our hands. They realized in due course that they couldn't do that, that the pent-up demand was too strong, and from that followed the 1940 August offer, and then in 1942, the, the Crips mission. 
But Churchill's going along with the, on the surface, is going along with this all the time, but b- below the surface, he's making it very clear that it's not going to work. Most of them colluded in talking about one thing, but meaning another. You know, they got away with it for 30 years. And then the result is when you get to 1947-ish, ultimately independence has got to come. There's been no true preparation for it. There's been no attempt to build up the kind of stable middle class, which is the nub of political stability. Towards the end, they could say, look, if we get out, there's going to be the most awful bloodshed. But that was because they hadn't started preparing for independence 20, 30 years earlier. There was the terrible bloodshed of partition and, you know, to some extent, a problem that still exists in India today of, of communal divide, which I think is, is due to an extent, not wholly obviously, but to an extent to Britain's policy. There are, of course, issues with anachronism, but it's also the case that we can be tempted to say, well, everyone was like this at the time about ideas that were actually deeply contested even at the time. And so while this is very much a word that there's often a lot more heat than light, how much of Churchill's worldview, not only with regard to India, but the empire and the world generally, like, would you say can just be described as racism? Churchill was was racist. A lot of his contemporaries were racist also. He was old. He was, you know, he was 20 years older than most of his political colleagues. So he was, he was, his views were formed even further back than theirs. He wrote from the start and he was clear that the British Empire was a good thing then. He was in favor of what was then called a forward policy in the empire, which effectively meant extending its boundaries somewhat. He was particularly thinking of, of in India, up on the northwest frontier. But that was not actually because he wanted more subject peoples in the empire. He thought that Britain brought a civilizing and civilized approach compared to that of, say, Russia, who were the main opponents in that area. He thought we brought a rule of law. He wasn't wanting freedom. He would rule, if necessarily, fairly toughly. But he thought that Britain was improving the lot of ordinary people in that way. So that is an aspect of his imperial approach and of his racism, which should be taken into account. Part of the problem about India in the 1930s was that British policymakers wanted India to become independent, if at all, when it would move to be just like one of the home counties in England. So he's complex. And I mean, I, I do say he was racist in relation to India because he he constantly belittles India. I think he was animated not by hatred for India, they, this idea about a uh, I hate Indian as the obesity people. Not too much should be made of that. But he was so determined to retain India for the sake of his vision of Britain and the empire that he behaved in a hateful way. I feel as though, certainly on the internet, terrible place that it is, it feels as though discussions of people like Churchill can become very quickly incredibly one-dimensional. 
and there's no way of going any deeper than quote unquote like holy good quote unquote holy bad where no one exists in that sort of space right so the nature of these discussions many people myself included can end up finding them quite off-putting and i'm assuming you think this because you've written a book about it but could you perhaps just tell us quickly why you think a topic like Churchill's relationship to India is something that is one that we should know about and is relevant to us in the present day and can actually give us a bit more of a informed three-dimensional view of this man. Well, I think the essence is that I want Churchill to be appreciated as a three-dimensional man. He is peculiarly approached in Britain and in America in a two-dimensional approach. There are some who think he was a racist and imperialist. There are others who think he was the greatest person ever and he was uh, he, had, he was without fault. And biographies continue to be written about him, which uh, simplify him in one or the other way. I remain a great supporter of Churchill. I think overall, he was a, a force for enormous good. But I wanted to indicate that you have to take a three-dimensional view of people. No one is wholly good. No one is wholly bad. The other thing I just think is worth doing for all of us, I mean, we look back at the people whose statues we throw in the, in the docks nowadays, and we think, how could they possibly have done this thing or that thing? How could they have believed what they believe? Uh, it's quite certain that our grandchildren will think that we held incredibly vicious views about something or other, but there'll be other things of which we have no glimmering that our descendants will think, how appalling, how could he possibly have said that, thought that? And it's maybe quite a good exercise for us just to throw our mind in that direction from time to time. Listeners, uh, you may well wish to do this. Walter and I are, of course, perfect baby angels. Uh, Walter, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Well, thank you for letting me in. I've really enjoyed our chat. It's been very stimulating. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please do support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing you're supporting independent media. I'm Ahir Shah. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ahir Shah. The producers were Liam Tate and Eliza Davis-Beard. And the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. And the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>